A couple of weeks ago, we started a new series of sermons, uh, kind of walking through the historical books of the Old Testament, one book a week, just asking the question, what is it about God's ways with his people and in his world that is specifically celebrated in this part of his word? So today we're looking at the story of Ruth. It's four chapters long. It is a love story. It's one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever heard. It's not only beautiful in how it goes, but beautiful in the way that it's told. And uh, we're going to hear a chapter of that love story now as one of our elders, Philip Spears, reads for us from the book of Ruth. Selections from Ruth, chapters 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mechlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, And after they had lived there about ten years, both Machlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? It is more bitter for me me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. She went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, She found herself working in a field 
belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. The word of the Lord. Everybody who knows Batman knows he has a backstory, right? If you want to know what makes Batman tick, any other superhero for that matter, you got to know the backstory. If you want to know why Batman is committed to fighting crime, you have to know of the crime that was committed against him and his family when he was a boy. If you want to know why Batman is committed to tracking down criminals that the police can't manage to catch, you got to know his backstory that the criminals who murdered his parents escaped. If you want to know why Batman never takes a life, okay, pause for a moment. I got a beef with Batman versus Superman. I know some of you may love that movie, right? But I got a beef with it. And the beef is Batman starts killing people in that movie. That's, that's not Batman. <laughs> right? Batman never kills anyone. Knowing his story, knowing the backstory, helps you know what are the themes that are just going to dominate this guy's life. And everything he does with his life, going to be shaped by how that story began. He's committed to fighting crime. He's committed to doing what the police cannot do. But he hates it when lives are taken, especially when they're taken unjustly. So he leaves that in the hands of other people. Backstory. The book of Ruth is... The backstory and and God's bigger story of Scripture. From this point forward, God's work in the world is going to center on raising up a king. A king. Last week we talked about, you know, a king is somebody who brings joy and peace and justice. So even those of us who think, I like casting votes Thank you very much. I don't want a monarch. I don't want a king. If you want joy and peace and justice, you want what the Bible calls a king. And so from this point forward in the story, God's main goal is going to be raising up that king. And Ruth is the backstory, answering for us the question, what are the themes that are going to permeate the reign of the king that God raises up? What, what are the themes that are going to dominate the rest of this story? Because how did it begin? Ruth is the backstory for what God will do in raising up a king. There wasn't always a king. Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges judged. In the days when the judges ruled. There was a famine in the land. Remember last week we talked about the book of Judges. And that recurring refrain in that book in those days there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes the time of the judges was a brutal time but this book ends this way it it ends with the birth of a baby a baby named obed he was the father of jesse this is ruth 4 chapter 4 verse 17 and jesse was the father 
of David. And then there's the genealogy. And literally the last word in the book of Ruth is David. 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 So by the time this story is written down, everybody knows there's a king. His name is David. But this is the backstory, right? So if you're a fan of Batman, but you need to be reminded why he is the way he is, you rehearse the backstory one more time. That's what the book of Ruth is. If you love the king God has raised up, King David, and you want to know what King David's reign is shaped by, you want to know the themes that shape his rule, You want to know the themes that are shaped the lives of people who gladly embrace the reign of God's king. Let's listen to the backstory again. And that backstory is the book of Ruth. And there's really only one theme that dominates the whole book. And that theme is chesed. It's a Hebrew word. We'll define it in a minute. But if you say it right, chesed, then the person sitting in front of you will feel something wet on the back of their neck. (laughs) Right? It involves this chesed. You're going to see it written down sometimes in in Christian books and literature, C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Well, why do people write that word? It's because they want to impress you and let you know that they know a Hebrew word. It's actually... Usually the fact that this word is so rich there is no single English translation that can capture everything about it. It's, it's a word that has to do with mercy and loving kindness and faithfulness, but a specific kind of faithfulness. Faithfulness to a covenant promise. A promise of life and love that is so serious that if it is broken it will bring death. So when I'm doing premarital counseling, sometimes we'll talk about the language of wedding vows. And and, um, I do promise and covenant. That language occurs in wedding vows oftentimes. Well, why say promise and covenant? Isn't covenant just another word for promise? No. If you break a promise, somebody will be disappointed. If you break a covenant, somebody will be dead. Deep, deep pain happens when covenants are broken. Chesed is a word that says... I will not let the covenant be broken. The promise of life and love that God has made to his people. He will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to fulfill every promise of life and love he has ever sworn. Loving kindness, mercy, loyalty, faithfulness. All of that wrapped up in this one word. And that is the theme that swirls around the backstory. Of God's king and God's kingdom. Loyal love. Let's use that as a shorthand for chesed this morning. So that I won't spit on anyone. Loving loyalty. Loyal love. Chesed. That is the theme of the book of Ruth. You see it as you read these chapters of this beautiful love story you see it in the heart of Naomi for her daughters-in-law Ruth and Orpah in chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 Naomi says to these two ladies as she's going back to the land of Israel back to the town of Bethlehem she says hey y'all go back go back to your mother's home now that's a little bit unusual phrase back to your mother's home 
normally you would say to a widow, go to your father's home where she could be cared for now that her husband is dead, especially these two ladies who have no children to care for them in their old age. If you read the story, these young ladies were married for 10 years, but we never hear anything about the birth of children. So go back to your father's home would have been the right thing to say if you're thinking about economics. Go to your mother's home. Well, the idea is the mother's bedroom is where arrangements for marriage were typically made. So this is her way of saying, I don't want you to face life like I'm facing life. My sons are dead. My husband is dead. There is nothing for me in this land. I am too old to remarry. And I don't want you to face a future as bleak as mine. So go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show chesed to you. May the Lord show you his loving loyalty. May the Lord show kindness to you, the NIV says. As you have shown to your dead, your husbands who have now passed away, and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, some of you who are unmarried may be squirming in your seat a little bit right now and saying, I don't like this book. It seems to assume that a woman's life matters only if she is married. That's not the assumption of the text at all. This text is just dealing with the realities of life in the ancient world. Your prospects financially for survival, especially in a time of famine, were very limited you didn't have a security network and family marriage children provided that so you see Naomi's heart right I'm facing a lonely life but my loyal love hopes for you something better than I hope for myself that's chesed that's loving loyalty that's the backstory of the king and the kingdom. You see this same theme of loyal love, certainly no more clearly in this book on a human plane than in Ruth's commitment to Naomi. What more beautiful words could you find than these? This is a love story. And there's so many dimensions of love. And, and the love that Ruth shows for her mother-in-law, right? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Yes, I could go back to my parents' home. Yes, I could remarry. But I am going to stay with you. That's loyalty. Right? Loving kindness expressed through loyalty. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Nothing will separate us. It's a picture of chesed, a picture of loving loyalty. And this book is just flashing in neon light saying, if you want to know what the rule of God's king, David, should look like, it should look like this. It should look like people going out of their way to show loyalty and love to those who are in grief and pain and need. Naomi is full of bitterness. Her life is full of grief and pain. And Ruth demonstrates loving loyalty to
to that one. So this book says to you, if you are full of pain today, if you are grieving the loss of a loved one, of many loved ones, if you are grieving the end of a marriage, if you are grieving for the fate faced by your children, if you don't know what your future looks like, you are in the position Naomi was in. And the Lord says to you that his chesed, his loyal love means you will not be forgotten. He wants to surround you with people who will love you through that time. And that is the backstory of his king and his kingdom. That's what our lives are intended to look like. There are plenty of reasons in the world that we live in to forget why. Okay, I'm going to speak for a moment from my own experience. I am a married man. I've been married for almost 25 years. So I don't mean to exclude people who aren't married in what I'm about to say, but I'm going to speak from my experience. There are tons of reasons this world would give you to forget why you love your wife. I assume the same thing applies to husbands. That's not my experience. Okay, my experience being a husband, lots of reasons this world will give you to forget why you love your wife. Because somebody else looks better. Somebody else is, you know, on the cover of this magazine. Somebody else is this year's star in all the big movies. Somebody else just made it big on American Idol. Somebody else, somebody else, somebody else would be perfect. And I've just found it so helpful over the years to pull back and think about the backstory and what loving loyalty looks like. And to be able to say, when those temptations come across my mind, that somebody else, somebody else would be more fulfilling to my heart than my own wife to just say, you know what? There's a lot of ladies on the face of this planet. Only one of them has ever moved across the ocean to be with me. When I moved to Scotland, she moved to Scotland. When I moved back to St. Louis, she moved back to St. Louis. Nobody else has shown me loyal love like Trisha has. It's not the only reason that I love her. But man, what a beautiful reason. Somebody who stood up 25 years ago and said, I'm going to make you a covenant promise. If I break it, it will bring pain. But I have no intention of breaking it. I will go where you go. We're in this together. Loyal love. Loyal love. No. We don't always honor those commitments, do we? We don't always show the loyal love we have promised. Good news of the book of Ruth is God always keeps that promise. No matter what it takes, no matter how long it takes, he will demonstrate chesed. He will follow through on his commitments to his people. So we've seen kind of this theme, this backstory theme of loving loyalty in the way that Naomi hoped for a better future for her daughters-in-law in the way that Ruth 
makes a commitment to her mother-in-law and follows through on it. And then you see this man, Boaz, this relative who's part of Elimelech's clan. The clan would have had several thousand people in it. So already you get this sense of the kind of loving loyalty our God is interested in doesn't just focus itself on a really small group of people. I will love these two people loyally. And the rest of you, forget about you. No, I'm concerned about how my clan is doing. I'm thinking about thousands of relationships. I want lots of people to experience the Lord's loving kindness because I have experienced it. That's the backstory. That's what the kingdom is supposed to look like. That's what the reign of the king is supposed to look like. And you see it in the way that Boaz cares for Ruth and Naomi. Later in chapter 2, Boaz says this. Uh, sorry, Naomi says this about Boaz. So if you know this story, you know that Ruth shows up to pick up some grain left over in a field. She has no idea whose field she's in because there were no fences around fields in those days. She just shows up in a part of the land outside Bethlehem, wide open space. She happens to be, the text says, just happens to be in the field of a relative of Naomi's husband. He takes Ruth under her wing. He says to his servants, hey, make sure you leave a little extra on the stalks today. Pile the pile bigger. Feed her as much as she wants at lunchtime. And don't lay a finger on her. I know she's from a foreign land. And you may want to mistreat her. But you will not. Naomi says this when she hears the story. The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. The Lord bless him. He's showing us loyal love. He is a kinsman who will redeem us. There's an interesting part of this story that that happens in chapter 4. You see the opposite. Of what the backstory is supposed to be. In Boaz, in Ruth, in Naomi, you see the kind of loving kindness, chesed, loyalty, that you're supposed to see in the backstory of the king. But in chapter 4, you meet another man. His name is Mr. Mumbo Jumbo. Kind of seriously, I mean that. Um, Boaz goes to uh, the court. Ruth has come to him in the middle of the night and basically said, will you please marry me? Because I have no future and my mother-in-law has no future. You're our only kinsman who can redeem us, who can make sure that the land that belonged to Elimelech doesn't pass out of the family forever, who can make sure by marrying me, we, we, we can have sons so that the family name can be carried on. Boaz says, I would love to do this. But there's one relative closer than I am. So let me go to court tomorrow and see what he decides. 
Next day comes, they go to court. It's not in a courthouse. It's sitting at the gates of the city. And um, he sees Mr. Mumbo-Jumbo walking by. So he says, in the Hebrew text says, he calls out to, the phrase is, Poloni Almoni. Poloni Almoni. It's the Hebrew equivalent of saying, hey, Mr. Mumbo-Jumbo, come over. I need to talk to you about something. Now, do you think that in a legal proceeding, Boaz is actually going to call the guy Mr. Mumbo-Jumbo? No. So what's going on? The writer of the book says, look, this guy was such a scallywag. We're not even going to write his name down. Because in the backstory of the king, people who fail to show chesed don't get remembered. So Boaz says, hey, you're the closest relative. These women are in need. If you want to buy this land, you can make sure it stays in the, in the clan. And the guy says, and Mr. Bumbo Jumbo says, what's in it for me? <laughs> I don't like this plan. And he actually says, if you read uh, chapter 4, he says, you know, I do not wish to redeem it. Because it might endanger my own estate. My children will have to divide the inheritance with more children. My, my wealth will be diluted. I will have to pay to feed this young lady and her mother-in-law. No, not interested. It's not supposed to be that way. When God raises up his king, King David, it's not supposed to be this way. Our hearts aren't supposed to be what's in it for me. Our hearts are supposed to be like this. What's in it for you through the Lord, through me? That's the heartbeat of chesed, of loving loyalty. That's the backstory of the king. What's in it for you through the, from the Lord, through me? Why has he put me here in your life for just this moment? So if your heart is broken like Naomi's, God wants to comfort you and say, hey, my longing is to surround you with loyal, faithful love. And if your situation is as precarious as Ruth's, I am a foreigner in a strange place. I do not feel welcome. I feel vulnerable. And I need someone to make sure I will not be taken advantage of. Then the Lord is saying, I want to surround you with redeemers. People who will protect and provide. That's the backstory of the king. And if your heart is saying, who am I and what difference can I make in this world? My little everyday, ordinary existence. Then the book of Ruth is saying, but do you, don't, do you not know that's exactly how the king works? God's king works through the realities of this life and this world. God's king works through realities like leaving a little grain at the corner of the field just because the Bible said to How do you conduct your business? How do you conduct your harvest? I'm just going to do what the Lord's word says. 
You have no idea how he will use that. It works through, well, through the mechanics of childbirth and conception. When you get to the end of this book, it says this. The women around Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. They're praising God. Why? The the preceding verse says this. Boaz took Ruth as his wife. Then he went in to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Really? The king is just going to use everyday, ordinary things like a man being faithful to one little verse in the book of Leviticus. The Lord is going to use the mechanics of human reproduction to do his work in the world. Really? If I just show chesed, faithful, loving loyalty in the everyday routines of life, I'm here for a reason. It matters. Yes, yes, yes. Your calling is to be a redeemer because you're part of the kingdom that is ruled by a redeemer king. The book of Ruth is the backstory, not only for King David's reign, but King David's reign is the backstory for the reign of a greater king. Ruth is one of the ancestors of King Jesus. And where does King Jesus do his work? Right here, this life, this world. He gets deep down into the ordinary, the everyday, the nitty-gritty, the tears that are cried over the people who can't conceive, the tears that are cried over death and suffering and sorrow and sickness. He gets right down into these realities, and he says, this is the kind of king I am. I want to show chesed, loving loyalty, doing whatever it takes for as long as it takes in this world, in these details. And I want my people to live in this kind of kingdom. We were having dinner with some friends the other night and we indulged a little silly game. Not so silly, but because I'm an adult, I have to tell you I think it's silly. We asked the question, so if you're a superhero... What would your power be? Trisha always says, flying. I would fly. Me, I want to be the flash. I want to be able to run that fast. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Would you want to be invisible? Would you? So one thing I was thinking of earlier today is, I've never said I would want my superpower to be chesed. (laughs) I want my superpower to be remaining faithful in loving loyalty for as long as it takes. And what would a superhero who had that power to save the world? That's what superheroes do, right? They save the world. What would a superhero like that wear? What would his costume be? It would be human flesh. 
And what would his greatest moment of triumph look like? It would look like death. It would look like crucifixion. The backstory of King Jesus starts with somebody who is willing to say what's in it for you from the Lord through me. Naomi says it about her daughters-in-law. Ruth says it about her mother-in-law. Boaz says it about these women. The Lord says it about his people. Jesus says it at the cross. What's in it for you? From God. Through Jesus. That's what life under God's king looks like. Loving loyalty. Here is a picture of loving loyalty. From Jesus. What would it look like? To do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to make sure that all of his people are rescued forever. The Lord's Supper is that picture. Jesus is our hero. Is it irreverent for me to say he's our superhero? Can we say that? Translate the gospel into the category of our culture and say, This is the greatest power you've ever seen. The power that would lead God to put on human flesh and follow loving loyalty all the way to death. The scriptures tell the story this way. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, ordinary simple part of daily life and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you in the same way after the meal he took a cup he said this cup is a new covenant it's a new promise of life and love a promise I will follow as far as it takes for as long as it takes this covenant sealed in blood, my blood, just shed, poured out for the forgiveness of many. Jesus says to eat in remembrance of him. He says to drink in remembrance of him. It's difficult for us to remember a kind of covenant love that we have not yet embraced. This meal has always been understood by the church to be the Lord's Supper So it's for people who have acknowledged Jesus as their Lord. Now, here's what God's kingdom is like. Even people who have not yet said, I embrace the king, can still benefit from the covenant love of the king. So we're happy to have people here in our church, people involved in the life of the church, people involved in our worship, who haven't yet said, Jesus is my king. He's my savior. But we would ask you as the elements are passed by, the bread and the wine, there's also grape juice for those who prefer it, that if you aren't 
walking with Jesus, that you would let these pass, not as a sign that you're somehow ineligible, but as a sign that you haven't yet taken that step of faith in his chesed. Let me invite our servers to come forward. I'm going to pray for us. And the reason I'm going to pray is because Jesus did. That's the main reason. Lord Jesus, the scriptures tell us that as you and your disciples took this meal together, uh, you gave thanks for the bread and you gave thanks for the wine. We love you so much that we don't need any further reason than that. Just to pray as you prayed. You, your heart went out to the Father to say thank you. So our hearts go out to him. Father, we thank you. But we know that the gift you're giving us today is greater than just bread and wine. But bread and wine that are set apart for this covenant, faithful, loving reason of reminding us that the one thing we needed most you gave us. We needed a redeemer. And you gave it in your son. Thank you for that great gift. We pray in his name.